Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Muscle Mentors podcast, people. Um, we're back. So, myself, Luke, joined by Paul, James, hey. Ross. Uh, no. Uh, Ross. Yes, we are. Yeah, Luke, Jimbo, Paul, and the Sex Goblin of Moria. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at, at Sex Goblin, the Muscle Mentor. And uh, Jimbo is obviously the one that we all decided we would marry from, yeah. uh, from the Muscle yeah. Mentors as well. Love you so. all, boys. I'm glad. Uh, I'll, I'll take that as a win. Yeah, yeah he's very in demand. Yeah. The thing is, like, you know, I actually went and bought a ring. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone else was taking it that seriously, but. <laughs> I don't know if a cock ring really counts, Luke. <laughs> yeah, because apparently that's everyone well for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, anyway, anyway, um, how's everyone doing? I'm assuming well. Good, mate. Good. Sorry. Very classic, well. Classic goblin behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, Ross is currently depressed. <laughs> I, got, um, I have like people, multiple people commenting on anything I put up now, just saying, oh, yeah, sex goblin. Like, skinny that's guys. Perfect. Skinny guys has messaged me multiple times. It's calling me a sex goblin. I've never been more pleased with something. Yeah. <laughs> with that outcome. Yeah. Surprise! Skinny guys wastes his time listening to our podcast. I mean, I reckon someone just sent him that part. It's like you got to call. Yeah. that sounds like something Paddy would have done. Yeah, yeah Paddy sent them. This is our competition. We have nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, uh, we we also. I might put it on the end as a blooper or we'll just put it on social media as a blooper. Like we just had a very interesting introduction to the podcast where I literally hit record and then James just left. Yeah, it went ready. Okay, three, two, one. <laughs> Jimbo Houdini. It was perfectly timed. The yeah, moment it was. The recording it was started, run. he literally left. Yeah, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, he said he was <clears> today, but I didn't realise we had like three minutes. <laughs> But no, so today we're talking um, volume. We're gonna we we had a, uh, a live on our education portal um, where I led a discussion around training volume. What like the the current research kind of says around that briefly, um, and essentially a look at how how we classically 
define and measure volume in, in the realms of resistance training and then potentially new ways we can look at it. Um, and I mean, a lot of it was basically highlighting how problematic some of the research is in the area. So I think this this conversation should be prefaced with the statement that this isn't coming from a place of arrogance that we think we can do research better than people, which is pointing out the fact that for people that are turning to research to find all the answers, there's a big gaping hole, especially in that area where, they, where they're considering training volume. Um, because... Within any of those bits and pieces, like if, if you're, if any research is, is that well conducted and that confident in its thing, it has nothing to fear from questioning. And the only reason you have something to fear from questioning is because you don't fully have the answer to that. Or you go, shit, I didn't consider that thing as, as well as I could. But if we're all coming at it from the same place, which is we want to know the truth, we want to know actually what works and what causes these things, then we have nothing to fear from that. And it should be a collaborative process. As we're all humans, though, so we all have egos. And if we were the ones conducting it, I'm sure we'd also be like, well, fuck those guys with their criticisms. I was doing my best over here. So... I get it, but we're, as, as Luke says, we're not trying to just be, uh, you know, arrogant, argumentative assholes for the sake of it. Yeah, 100%. Um, but it's the thing, so I mean, the question they're, they're ultimately trying to ask is, is more or less resistance training better for hypertrophy? And I think the problem with that is they're assuming that that statement is maybe similar to someone saying something like, is more or less water better for health? And in the sense of like water is is fairly constant in its you know chemical structure and its effects on human biology and all this sort of stuff, um, human physiology. Um, but in the case of resistance training, I mean that's that that premise of saying like is more or less resistance training better without examining how the resistance training is being performed, who's doing it, all these sorts of things. It's, it's falsely assuming that resistance training looks the same in every scenario. Um, and, and is, is dealt with in the same way by everyone's body, um, which we generally know isn't. Um, so, I mean, that's probably a fairly decent place to kick off because that was the fundamental like argument I had against what people are finding in areas of research around training. But, maybe before we go down that, that tangent, um, Luke, just talk through how like, volume traditionally defined. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good point. So training volume, essentially, people will often be like, and, and we'll see it a lot in coaches where maybe they'll track this as a metric within their, their practice um, when they're dealing with clients and, you know, each, you know, they'll write a training program out and they'll have a thing that will calculate how much volume on paper they're doing. And for those listening, I just air quoted. Um, because what, and what they do is they basically times the number of reps by the number of sets they're doing and then by the load they're potentially lifting so if they're doing 100 kilo barbell press for three sets of eight reps they would multiply all those figures together and they'd be left with some sort of who done three sets of ten i was gonna say why on earth in that example did you pick three sets of eight and not three sets of ten? i'm working three sets i'm not gonna do the uh i'm not gonna do the calculation but yeah if we call it ten so they'd be left with three thousand kilos of volume 3, there you go there we go <laughs> Well, it was only 2,400, the other one, wasn't it? Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> I mean, that's not, that's not so off the mark. But... <laughs> we did three sets of seven at 123 kilos, and so... <laughs> yeah, yeah but, that, but those are examples of what, and you know, we'll get, but, you know, 
people maybe oh, they'll calculate they'll they'll do sets as like you know to precise that like that and then they'll be like i just lifted 4337 kilos through my quads and you're like no you fucking didn't and um, by the way this one comes from some so there was a schoenfeld study that looked at exactly this thing where they did three sets of 10 right. and then equated the volume load but did seven sets of three to get the same volume load let's say if you did three sets of 10 and it got you three thousand then whatever seven sets of three that equals three thousand is that's what they went and did. And it turns out if you do that across a couple of groups, I think the study was six weeks long, you saw the same level of growth in both conditions, same exercise they did it up. One of those was much more time efficient, it's way quicker to do three sets of 10 than it is to do seven sets of three with big old rest periods. The group who did really heavier stuff also reported things like a bit more joint pain and stuff. We want to look a bit more closely as to exactly what might be causing that as well. But that is where we start to get this traditional concept of as, as Jimbo started to allude to, sets times reps times load, volume thing. And there's not nothing behind why and how they've gone and researched this thing. It's just there's more issues to it than it sounds like there should be just on the face of what we've just described. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, Luke used the, the analogy at the start of, of water, of going, you know, is more or less better? Is more or less water better? And, you know, there's, there's an idea possibly in that of like, well, it's impossible to have too much water to be healthy. No, it's not. Like we've all heard stories of people doing a load of ecstasy and then drowning themselves to death in water because they couldn't regulate their fluid intake and they just kept drinking and they died from water intake. And if water, arguably the healthiest thing on earth for you, you can consume so much that you die, then there's a concept within there, inevitably, that you can't have a conversation about anything without specifying a dose of that thing in order for it to be effective, whether that's water or whether it's arsenic or hell, Botox. Botulinum. Botulinum is one of the most toxic substances known to man. And yet we're so confident of dosing it effectively. You could walk into a clinic off the high street and have someone stab at you in the face. Right. <laughs> like if we can have the most toxic stuff and the healthiest stuff and we can either have a safe dose of that or an unhealthy amount that would murder you from water. We can't have a conversation about any topic without specifying a dose. And it's certainly going to be true of volume. But the volume thing has this other confounding variable that isn't going to be true for water or for botox let's say in the the base unit of volume isn't standardized we can at least say what a gram of water is we could at least say what a milligram of botox is we can't say what the gram of volume is the gram of volume is a rep but a rep isn't standardized it'd be like trying to measure something in meters without first having agreed what the fuck a meter is like we all need an agreed upon this is the unit we measure everything else by before we can have a discussion about it and so, uh, yeah. the rep changes too much and uh, where but also i mean some people might be like oh but you can measure it by the gram because when i do these calculations i'll come out with i'm lifting 3322 kilos mm-hmm. after i've done these three sets and you're like well, the, the problem is in that situation is that, you know, like Paul just said, we co- we got to standardize kind of all the things that we're using in that equation and load um, in particular is, is looked at like people will be like, okay, I'm lifting 10 kilos or let's go back to the 100 kilos, 100 kilos on a bench. And that's what it is throughout the whole set in terms of how my body recognizes that load and deals with what's on the bar. But for those that have dug into mechanics and things like that um and i'd say until you have if, if someone's sitting there being like this sounds like bullshit i'd say please go and look into some physics because there's some like unlike you things you cannot argue with on the physical front which paul will probably elaborate on 
but 100 kilos on a bar is not 100 kilos on a bar relative, you know, when you factor in how fast you're moving that thing. If you drop that thing really quickly through an eccentric, that you're going to have to come up with more force to stop it at the bottom. So if you're comparing people doing three sets of 10 reps on a bench press at 100 kilos and they're moving that thing at different speeds, the actual volume that their body, their neuromuscular system is going to be faced with is going to be vastly different. Um, and that's the problem. That's the thing that is never controlled for in these studies. Um, and, the, and people be like, oh, yeah, but they do prescribe rep tempos and stuff like that. But again, there's not enough control um, and also factoring in, you know, individual anatomies and all these sorts of things to actually just say, oh, they've written a tempo and that's enough. So, I mean, I'd go with if we start with a question about mechanical tension. So for those unfamiliar, the primary driver, the key thing that seems to always come up as being responsible for muscular growth is this thing known as mechanical tension. Well, what is it? Well, the mechanical bit is just it referring to the reality of the physical world, essentially. And tension refers to a tensile force. And the tensile force is any force that tries to pull something apart. So really, we're exposing some force that is trying to pull your muscle apart. That is what mechanical tension effectively is. And that is what the muscle tissue then responds to, to generate force, to stop it being effectively pulled apart or rotate joints. We'll be talking about torque in this instance. But if mechanical tension then, tensile, responding to force is the driver of hypertrophy, well, then we need to understand some things about force. First off, force isn't static. Luke just said 100 kilos isn't always 100 kilos. If we wanted to be really fussy about our description, 100 kilos, the mass of the object, is 100 kilos. But that object, that mass, isn't just what we're dealing with. It's being accelerated by something. And on Earth, that acceleration is gravity. If we can vaguely remember our lovely Isaac Newton ship, we might remember this odd thing called force equals mass times acceleration, F equals MA. The force we're dealing with is the mass times the acceleration, that acceleration being gravity. If you were to then drop a bar from a height down to the floor, that by the time the bar hits the floor, it has a greater force because it's been accelerated to a faster velocity than if I just placed it on the floor. And it, we're all familiar that if you're not, just drop a dumbbell on your foot versus place a dumbbell on your foot and tell me that the forces you were exposed to were the same. They're not. Force isn't static. It's dependent on what's happening to the object in that moment. So if we were to do that 100 kilo bench press and I was to essentially almost drop the bar to my chest and catch it just before it hits my chest, the force I have to come up with to stop the momentum of that object is way higher in that position than if I lowered it really slowly. Now, we might then say, well, the volume of the rep could be calculated as the same. We did one rep. But where the force was placed in the rep was not consistent. One of these guys where you had to catch it, just jump off a, you know, go on the, your window ledge if you live on the first floor and jump off and see if you, you have to generate the same amount of force as if you step off a small step and the staircase. You don't. You have to generate it relative to, in, in physics, momentum is mass times velocity. And we have to generate force which also requires a period of time that it's exposed to in order to stop that momentum. It's called an impulse. So if this thing is slamming down to the floor, the force we generate is really high. So let's say the bottom of the bench press, let's say for the sake of argument, we're in a roughly lengthened pec position. The forces I'm exposed to, the tensile 
mechanical tension forces I'm exposed to in that position is really, really different than if I went really slowly into that position. And that's just looking at one position under one tempo without any consideration of kit and equipment and everything else kind of going on. But it just is going to bring to this idea that we can't standardize the unit of rep of volume unless we standardize some of these other things like what were the forces in that moment at that muscle length for that person when they had to turn that thing around? Otherwise, it's not the only variable. It wasn't just the volume. And I think that's the, because the, 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 a response to that could be what you just said of, um, oh yeah, but if we, you know, if we said, if we're producing, you know, a modest amount of force throughout the entire range versus a really high amount of force at one particular point in the range, the overall volume if we could get into specifically calculating it might be similar but then the response to that is there's a huge body of evidence out there showing that different things happen to muscle tissue when you like demand different things of it at different ranges so if you know if we get a muscle into much lengthier a length and position and expose it to a lot of force certain things happen within the tissue that don't happen when you do that in the shortened position or more equally across a range of motion etc so it's um do you want to just give them a little bit on the, like sarcomeres in, in parallel versus in sequence on that kind of thing on muscle lengths? Absolutely or... not. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, so generally, I mean, the in a, in a simplified sense, what they've shown, and, and this is in that coming, going down the rabbit hole of when people are saying like, is regional hypertrophy a thing? So can you basically grow muscles at specific points in, in its, you know, in, in the muscle belly, essentially? Um and in the in the sense of you know for the example Paul just described, if we were doing a bench press and like having to drop that thing, you know, through an eccentric and then catch it in a lengthened position, when we expose muscles to high amounts of force in lengthened positions, one of the adaptations is we seem to lay more um, sarcomeres in series um, than in parallel, which basically means those individual contractile units within the muscle, more of them are laid end to end. Um, and that tends to do this thing where overall we kind of get this increase in muscle length, which still increases like the mass of that thing. If you had a balloon and you couldn't move the ends further apart, but you added more kind of balloon, yeah, more balloon <laughs> that thing would still bulge up more in a, in the sense like that. But the adaptation is that muscle's more um, more able to deal with forces that are going to try and lengthen it very aggressively. Versus if you've got, you know, muscles where they've loaded it more, um, more like essentially more, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? And these ones, they said overload just the concentric. If yeah, the concentric, but I say more um, throughout the entire, you know, the contractile yeah. portion of the range. So there's no kind of focus on just the length and position. There's this adaptation that we seem to get where there's more sarcomeres in parallel, which is where the muscle would generally get thicker. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, so there's different things that happen. Um, and I think that's what enters into the conversation of that's something they've shown. So if we're going to not control for how we're loading the muscles and how we're going to contract in these volume studies, then, you know, we, we, we're leaving a big hole in terms of when we make conclusions based on more or less is better. We need to know exactly how they're doing it to be yeah, sure. Yeah, like when, if we were to say that, for example, training at long muscle lengths leads to increased hypertrophy in series tends to be at the ends of the muscle, right? The musculotendinous junction, you see more of these guys as Luke described, put 
in line with each other rather than next to each other in people might, Yeah, people might have heard like distal region, distal hypertrophies. That would be like hypertrophy, like essentially closer to the insertion as opposed to an origin, which would be closer to the, the midline of the body. But, you know, just working at that long muscle length doesn't necessarily guarantee that. I can be at a long muscle length under very minimal load if I set up an exercise as such. And so, well, is it the long muscle length or is it the high forces at long muscle length? Well, I don't know, because these things are very rarely specified. The only time they sort of get near to doing it is when they just do like super eccentric overload, which sort of gives it no choice <laughs> to some degree. But these things aren't too difficult for us to specify if we wanted to in a study. I always say well, people are doing PhDs in super complicated like biochemical pathways. And the physics I'm describing is taught at A level. Like what we're asking to put in isn't like isn't super some weird quantum stuff that's done at the arse end of nowhere in physics. It's like foundational stuff. Um, and there's no reason that that shouldn't be included more in PhD level research when it comes to being in the gym. You know the funny thing here, I've literally, I got joint structural function so I could bring out this illustration here. So up here and people watching on YouTube. It's again, one of Luke's features for the for the audio podcast. Yeah, that's fantastic. But they have a really nice diagram for when Paul was describing tensile strain. But I, I literally just looked at these graphs over here and they're basically discussing exactly what we were just saying of, Changes to cross-sectional area and length of the same tissue will affect its overall response to load. Increasing cross-sectional area means the tissues can withstand more force at any given length before failure, brackets, it is stiffer. And that's what we're describing of more sarcomeres in parallel. So more sarcomeres next to each other. So we're kind of getting a thicker tissue. Versus B, increasing tissue length means it can elongate farther under the same loading conditions. It is less stiff. Stiffness is reflected by the slope of the linear portion of the curves. And then they've got these nice diagrams. So if you've got joint structure and function, this is the sixth edition. Turn to page 67 in your notes. <laughs> um, no, but the, um, the, that's the, nice the only person doing that is Luke listening to oh, no, no. <laughs> Luke listening <laughs> to himself. <laughs> no, I'd say it would give you a nice illustration. They've got some graphs to illustrate it, but basically... <laughs> It, it shows kind of what we what like basically a, a graphical representation of what we just discussed. If you've got a tissue with more sarcomeres in series, um, it's going to be able to tolerate trying to changes in length a bit more effectively. Which, by the way, it leads to some like interesting speculation in terms of what effect does that have on length tension relationships over time, um, and what does that mean for a strength profile and adaptations potentially over time. This I think it's a it's a cool potentially very interesting area of research. It's just yeah. missing some bits in order to answer it properly. And it was so, and like, I mean, the, the two differences there are that if we load tissues, you know, really aggressively in lengthened positions, we're going to make tissues less stiff. And if we're, if we're going to do it the opposite way, where we get more sarcomeres in parallel, it's going to increase in stiffness. And then that changes how muscles behave. And then that means. And just to freak you guys out listening even further, that's only looking at muscle stuff. We can look at tenderness stuff in here as well, and fascial stuff yeah. too. Part of that relationship is probably why that's the case, right? If you're going to make things less stiff, they're going to be like, oh, shit, things are going to... I need this thing to be a bit more stretchy and you're loading it really aggressively as I get into a lengthened position. So I'm going to make it less stiff. So it's less I give stiff. you just a little insight into what the hell that means because I realized that could have sounded super vague, right? So a tendon can behave really weirdly. It gets called viscoelastic, which means it can behave viscously. We'll say what that means in a second. And it can behave elastically under different conditions. We're all pretty familiar, I hope, with elastic stuff. 
we stretch it, snaps back. You can imagine an elastic band in your head. It's called an elastic band because it's elastic. You stretch it, it snaps back relatively quickly as well. Viscous stuff, think of that. Was it called silly putty? What was that stuff used? Yeah. Is it silly putty? Yeah, sort of like a play. I mean, it wasn't quite like a play. It was like goopy stuff, wasn't it, as a kid? And like you could stretch Armstrong, actually. He would be kind of viscous, right? You could pull and deform it if you exposed it to a steady force slowly. If you pulled it really aggressively and rapidly, it would snap. But if you slowly lengthened it, it would change its length and then it would slowly come back. Right, so viscous, that's a viscous substance, a viscous fluid, maybe you've heard. It's like a thick fluidy kind of thing. But you can you can change its its uh, its length, but only if you expose it to forces relatively slowly. Whereas elastic stuff can be rapid, bing, and it pings back. Tendons, when we're under light-ish loads and we're moving rapidly, behave more elastically. And when we're under heavier loads and moving a bit slower, they behave more viscously. And we can cause them to adapt in either direction a bit, right? Just like most kind of things. We will have uh, a dispensation towards one of these more than the other, depending on our just genetics. Some people are going to have stiffer tendons, more viscous tendons. Some people are going to have maybe more elastic kind of tendons. But that has an effect on how this thing behaves. If you imagine, let's say you, you lengthen your elbow, right? And all your uh, elbow flexors, all your biceps and stuff lengthen. Well, the tissues that are lengthening, we always think of them as being muscle tissue must be lengthening, but there's actually a combination, right? It's not just muscle tissue that's lengthening. There's this tendon's going to have to lengthen as well. Well, if the tendon is behaving elastically and therefore the tendon lengthens more, well, then the muscle tissue doesn't have to lengthen as much, even though to the external eye, you're not going to be able to see this. But if the tendon has lengthened more than the muscle, then the sarcomere lengths within the muscle won't have extended as far. And if you then know your length tension stuff, you're going to say, well, it's not going to move as far in the length tension curve. Whereas if I move slowly and that tendon stiffens up and behaves more viscously, I'm going to see a greater change from those sarcomeres because it has to come from something else. And it's not now coming from the tendon as much. So we also have this other facet of strength profiles based on speed of movement and bodily adaptations and genetics on which bit is lengthening? Is it muscle? Is it tendon? And how are those things behaving and interacting? And by the way, there's no good way of knowing <laughs> the full answer to that. It's just shit you kind of have to keep somewhere in the back of your brain as going, oh, that happens. And so, yeah, it gets it gets squirrely and nerdy and just adds even more complexity to uh, how much should you do debate. Exactly. So bring it back. Uh, I say bring it back. It was still part of it. That was awesome. Um, everyone's thoughts. Probably Jimbo and Ross, because we haven't heard from you. Yeah, we've been just talking too much. <laughs> I, 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 do. I think well, my thing with this, right, is there's no reason you can't use volume to quantify something within your sessions. Right? I think because yeah. nobody wants, we don't want you going in there going, right, I can't use this, <laughs> this simple <laughs> equation to progress my training. I think what people need to understand is that we can't use it as like an objective definition of this is exactly what's going on all the time. There's no reason that you can't use sets by reps by load to quantify your progression. I do it. The lads do it. It's probably the most obvious way to do it. I, I do it. I do it. Yeah. Whoa. 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 I'll, I'll leave right now. But the point, comes, yeah, the point, I think our conversation is more leading to the point that we're not trying to tell you that more is better or you should think that more is better. It's a case of understanding, okay, what is this thing that we're trying to say more is better of? You know, that kind of way. That's the conversation we're trying to have is, is to try and define it. And the short and sharp answer is that we can't. There's too many variables to define this thing called volume. But you can use volume to quantify if you want. I think when people say volume is the key driver of hypertrophy, that's not really the case. I would say 
volume is a means or how what we traditionally look as volume is a means of quantifying your progression. I think that I don't think really people can disagree with that statement to an extent, right? Here's, so here's one of the issues, right? Let's say when we com- if you change exercises, comparing volume becomes an absolute shit show, right? Let's say that previously you were using a squat as one of your main lower body exercises. And now in your new session and the new phase you're moving into, you're going to change it to a leg press. And so previously you had 120 kilos that was the load calculated in your volume. And now you've got 320. Feels as difficult as the 120 did for reasons related to the leg press and you. But your volume has tripled, but your results haven't. But volume is the key driver. So surely I should be having, I've tripled my volume. Surely I should be having triple my quads, triple my ass, triple my adductors. So why has that not been the case? And it's because that's not, a, we can't compare those two things. That's not really what we're exposed to. So I, same as, same as Ross said, I, I have volume in my sheets. And this goes back to when I first made my sheet. Well, not when I first made them, but at some point during this, when I discovered Schoenfeld and Co's claims that volume was the, the key driver of hypertrophy, I was like, sweet, I want to track that. I want to make sure that that's going up. And then I slowly sort of came into this bit of going like, oh, their volume's gone down, but they've gotten better. But I've changed the exercise. How the fuck do I measure this? And kind of going, it, there's not nothing to it. I'm with Ross and saying there's not nothing. Uh, and if it's relative to what you were previous doing and you've standardized the rep on the exercise and you're using the same exercise, and let's say you were doing two sets of eight to 10 within that thing and you've actually kept the range of motion the same, the rep speed and the exercise the same, but you've progressed and we can see your volume's going up. You've actually got stronger at that particular thing. I'd expect to see some results. I'd be fine with that. But when we start switching a bunch of these things around, it's like, well, <laughs> then it becomes literally fucking useless. If you change that rep speed, if you change the exercise, if you change the range of motion, whatever, you're like, ah, fucking no. <laughs> Jimbo, are you going to say something? <laughs> or just to add a different aspect, different way to look at stuff as well. Volume for, I say on the bench press, are we looking volume for everything that goes through horizontal shoulder flexion? So pecs, anterior delt, yeah. biceps, uh, that creates that? Or are we looking at volume of elbow extensors? Yeah. Like volume of what? So if we're looking at that bench press and we're saying this three sets of 10 with 100 kilos is the optimal volume, but how do I account for the elbow extensors? How do I account for the triceps? Does that, oh, is that 33% of the volume? Yeah. So, so then I've got to sort of times my total volume by 33% to get, okay, I've done this much volume for my triceps. So we just never know quite how much volume is required. But as, as Ross said, if you've got a standard volume that you've worked in previously on that bench press and you've standardized the tempo, standardized the reps, then for that movement in time, you can see progression within that. But if you change that bench press to a dumbbell press, to a D-handle cable press, to a Cybex Eagle chest press, the volume for each one of them at the pec, at the maybe triceps, is going to be potentially completely different or it is going to be completely different. <laughs> Has it ever annoyed anyone where they've been just Well, just, just to like add to that, and the reason they're different is because they are all going to like apply completely different forces to your body. Um, it's not just, oh, it looks like a press, so it's the same. They're really not. Um, yeah, so you can't analyze them like that. Has um, anyone else ever been annoyed though when they've uh, so this used to annoy me? If I ever had to use a cable stack and the cable didn't have like load on it, it'd just say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I so I'd be using, yeah, so I'd then just be going, ah, oh, I'm using the tens. 
but this press with the tents, I'm like, well, it makes it look like I'm lifting a hundred total kilos <laughs> across this yeah. thing. Whereas my previous dumbbell yeah. work, it's like, ah, I've got a way weaker, but my chest looks better. Like shit. That used to really, I say that because of this. Oh, the Watson stuff. The Watson stuff is just numbered from one yeah. to 14. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure they actually weigh 5.25 kilos. Because I remember the first place. You can stick a thing on. and, and yeah, First place I worked in, I'm pretty sure we weighed them. But then you just pull on the, you know, attach the, the pull yeah. the thing and you'd weigh it on that way because you, yeah. it could weigh 10 kilos on the stack, but it might not, it might be five kilos when it gets to you. But you're going to have this annoying thing though, where if you write the load down based on the luggage scale load and then you come back, you're going to have to get your luggage scale back out every single time to be like, hang on, was the 14 the 26 or was the th- so what was what well, it was the 13 that's gonna be really awkward in your spreadsheet when you're just looking down how many reps did i get last time what load did i use what am i trying to be you're like uh I don't know. So you end up just writing whatever's on the cable and then completely ruins your volume calculations i mean I, that sort of thing never bothered me because it wasn't I, I personally would just look at those things and i would just go off the numbers so i'd be like i did oh i do don't get me wrong yeah. so but like, when i was like right. into volume the first time right. i was like this this ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but so on ross's point um, where he was saying like we're not saying it's bad um, and, and we should never use it he's, he's absolutely right the, the point when we discussed this um, I was going to say yesterday it was Thursday so two days ago um, was um, and I, I was I was literally just got the slide up which I said you know went through what I think are the four main factors that influence things but the where I said, so when studying training volume, researchers as researchers are essentially asking the question, is more or less of a given stimulus or resistance training better for muscle growth? These factors all change the stimulus someone's neuromuscular system will receive during a given set. And those are the, these factors were the things I went through. And they're basically how we do the exercise, um, how the load we use meets us or what's going on with the machine, uh, how are we doing it in terms of speed, range of motion, setup, you know, proximity to failure, what type of muscle contraction or action are we biasing, et cetera. Um, and, and then, you know, the, they may not account for these things in research because it's pretty hard, but they still should. Um, and But the closing point in this slide was, was that we can in our coaching, and that's where, like it comes back to when we are coaching people and when we're, you know, writing programs and stuff, if we're aware of the mechanical realities of the things we're getting them to do in terms of what's going on with the machines and, you know, what, what, why we're getting them to move at certain speeds and and potentially more aware of the forces they're actually exposed to, then we we can do a far better job potentially um, in practice of, of accounting for these and actually using volume as a metric in that sets reps load thing if we're aware of all that other stuff that goes into what makes load load when we use it in these in these scenarios um but um i mean any thoughts on that or we agree because i had another question so there's a there's a movement that's come in fairly i want to say fairly recently in the scheme of things it's not been an approach i've heard because the approach generally i've i've experienced is like the dominant approach on like the bodybuilding scene and stuff is for top set back off set take everything to failure da, 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 da. um that's how we do it whereas there's a new way of doing it where people are basically what i would say is arbitrarily increasing volume across you know a mesocycle so they might take a 12-week program and they'll do three weeks with a certain amount and then they'll have a th- another three-week period where they'll then add volume and then they'll add volume again and then they'll add volume again and the idea is they're just progressively overloading the volume and by the end of it they're doing more and more is better um 
I mean, in fairness, that's a really old approach. Like that's a yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think we've come back to it because I think yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and and in my opinion, I would say my opinion, I think it's risky, and it's based on assumption alone. (laughs) It's based on this assumption that yeah, that research that was conducted has has been generally showing that more volume is better. So I'm going to run with that and assume that more volume is better. And if I just take anyone and give them more volume across a period of 12, 16, 20 weeks, whatever, that's going to be lead to more muscle. Um, and I go back to Paul's uh, quote, or not Paul's quote, Paul's often cited quote from um, Under Siege 2, I believe. Assumption, <laughs> assumption, assumption is the mother of all fuck ups. Yeah, um, it, it's, 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 it requires more investigation <laughs> to be able to use things like that properly. And, and generally, the best thing, when you look at research on volume, because I'm not, and I said this in the, in the presentation as well, is don't disregard research on volume if you agree with what we're saying. Because there's some really cool stuff when you look at those things, and when you, you see in the individual pools, because all they're giving you in these studies is the average. So they've been like, okay, the conclusion is this is what we generally saw across all these 36, 40, 50 participants. But if you look at the specific tables that they'll do, and if you find like contralateral or studies where they use contralateral training methods, so if they put someone in a leg extension and said, your left leg is doing low volume, which might be one set, and your right leg is going to do five sets, and we'll see what happens. Those are quite interesting to see. But in general, in these, in these study pools, if you look in the individual graphs in these studies, when you read them, you'll see some pretty interesting things where you'll see people that when they do the high volume, they absolutely explode. And then you'll see some people in the high volume groups that lose most of their muscle. <laughs> then you see some people in the low volume groups that explode and some people that lose muscle. And you're like, oh, so that's you also see some people in there. You also see some people in there who are the same in both. Yeah, they don't <laughs> so make, they don't make any difference to them. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh, so there's this individual difference thing that really comes into play. And I think that's what these, so the coaches out there that are going, oh, well, I'm just going to increase volume across a 12 week phase or for the 16 week phase. You're, you're missing the point. You're basically making the mistake the researchers haven't been like, we're going to assume this works for everyone. And, and it might be the case of in that 12-week period, you stumble across the formula for the person who's doing it and they get to this point where like, oh my God, they're progressing like mad and they feel great and all these sorts of things. But equally, you might get some people where actually where you started them was the maximum they needed and then it just tipped them off a cliff and they became worse and worse and worse in terms of their adaptations throughout you're also going to find that if you've got ever tried to do a completely predetermined approach for an extended period of time for a real human being you're going to realize ah shit these people have lives and so maybe this period where we were ideally we wanted to push their volume up but their sleep sucks balls they've just broken up with their partner this thing and that thing is happening you're like their recovery capacity is going in the opposite direction for us to increase their volume from and so it's one of those ones where yeah you can play with laying those things out but in reality when coaching you've got to be willing to to tweak that stuff as you go and go yeah i'd like to have done that but this isn't appropriate for this person and where they are right now and i need to reflect that in what i'm asking them to do in in their training and i I think the boys are gonna and we'll let them waffle about it but no no okay (laughs) but but playing around with you know is this individual going to be someone who responds well to intensity techniques relatively low volume pushing stuff balls to the wall either because psychologically they really like it or because physiologically they respond very well are they someone who responds a bit better to a slightly higher volume approach 
you, you're not really going to know that till you start playing around with it with your clients and finding out where their levels for that are. And even if you have got that, it's not going to work forever. So if they're on a particular approach for three to six months, they might start responding really well to a slightly different approach after an extended period of time. And you get to play around a little bit. Any thoughts there, boys? One of the biggest things with, with that, that's great to obviously experiment on yourself, great to experiment with clients through different phases. But say for example purposes, you did a 12-week block of lower volume and then you did a 12-week block of slightly higher volume but you saw more progression in that higher volume block. Was that because you did 12 yeah. week block previous to that of lower volume? If you'd done them the other way around, would you see more results with a lower volume when that came second? Yeah. We're never going to quite know what it is because every one of us is slightly different. And even if we try and take that same scenario, well, was that the thing that created the result or was it the thing that before that led to the adaptations that then allowed the result to create? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just never going to know the answer to it. So yes, we continually got to experiment. Yes, we continually got to try different things and see what is optimal for the individual. But if we think we know the answer, <laughs> we, our ego is too big. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We're never going to know the true answer in terms of what is optimal for ourselves, let alone our clients. Amen. Yeah, and then, I mean, there's that thing of a survivorship bias as well, right? Where let's say a hundred of us try out this fucking balls to the wall approach and five people in it get amazing results, but 95 of us die. Well, you don't see the 95 who died. You see the five people who blew up and did amazing because, you know, we're human beings and we like to promote the successes. We don't, no one pays attention to all those guys who tried to found fucking Nike and Adidas, but didn't. No, we read the dude who actually found it. We read the guy who, we read Michael Jordan's autobiography. We don't read the thousands of other people who were awesome in high school and tried to go and do the same thing. So I'm going to so be, sometimes we, yeah, yeah. I'll be one of them examples who was awesome, but not, not Michael Jordan. By yeah, movie. exactly. Awesome. And, and yet, yeah, any you know, approach probably in the previous 20 years, I've almost tried, whether it's 10 sets yeah. of 10, whether it's 6, 12, 25, whether it's a Milos-based 10 exercise giant set, whether it's a one rep to failure type thing. Like you name it, I've already tried it. And when it comes down to it, it really is, well, what's sustainable for the long term? Because we want to stay in this game for five years, 10 years, 20 years, years plus. And doing a, a Milos style giant set, I'll choose that as one, where we choose 10 exercises in a row, back to back. That's not sustainable from a training perspective long term. Doing 10 sets of 10 where you just do squats. I did, used to do back squats, 120 kilos, 10 reps, minutes rest. 10 reps, minutes rest, 10 sets. Like, <laughs> that was the yeah. death of it. A 20-minute death that was literally. Um, or another one I did for volume, where you do two reps on your six rep max for squats, two reps on your six rep max for a hamstring curl, no rest in between, go back and forth between the squats and hamstring curls for 30 minutes. <laughs> it was great to share the squat rack and the leg curl <laughs> for, that, for that half an hour. <laughs> Completely different extremes. And the differences I've seen within each one was negligible. And that's obviously me on my own and everyone else is going to be completely different but i know that them extremes of volume are not sustainable long term for 95 percent of people probably listen to us and that doesn't mean that there's no place for 
occasionally having periods of almost silly work because you do there's a time and a place for aggressive and intense it isn't where you're going to spend the vast majority of your training life and career because no one is but you can learn things from those bits you might find a work ethic from those things that is actually useful when you bring it into anything else you might find oh fuck i actually did respond really well to that beat me up but okay so there's we go back to almost that quadrant idea i think i brought up either on last week or whatever there's a time and a place for tough and there's a time and a place for reasonable the vast majority of the time is reasonable though even though we're all much more excited by the tough shit it sounds cooler those stories jimbo is just saying of doing grim stuff they make us laugh they make us smile part of us is like oh that'd be fun to, to try hey, now we're gonna do I think in Jimbo's case, they also make you miss your knees quite a lot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but they only make you miss your knees like five years later, so you don't really know at the time. <laughs> I'm the same. Um, but I'm not, I'm not trying to, as you, as you say, Paul, put people off trying higher volume approaches, trying then different approaches, because if anything, more what we get from training is that the mental toughness really rather than sometimes the physical result. Yeah. Uh, in terms of long term so the amount of mental toughness that I had to go into to do 10 sets of 10 and try and beat what I'd done five days before like every time you're going into that you know it's gonna be death for 20 minutes um you don't get that same you don't have to go through that same mental toughness if you're just doing one set of five whatever I mean same thing with giant sets doing six exercises back to back or whatever it may be is brutally hard yeah. And to have the the mindset to go through that is extremely tough and yeah. people coming on to our training camp in four weeks five weeks they'll they understand what some mental toughness is going to be under probably a, a lower volume approach because it's not going to be the least possible to implement anything yeah high volume. the um i think a, a point worth adding is um yeah because we're talking about these scenarios where we're like oh yeah high volume high reps high sets and stuff like that that isn't necessarily the only way to increase volume. I think a lot of us um, could, uh, I brought this up on Thursday again, for those that are on the portal, you'll see it in the replay. Um, the, you know, if you take the example of someone who's super new to training and maybe you, you give them four exercises and they're doing one set of 10 for each one, let's say that's what the session is initially, that would be quite extreme, but let's say that's what it is. Um, extreme on the low side, that is. Um, four sets of 10, four different exercises, that's it. So one set each. Um, but they come in initially and they're Bambi on ice. They have absolutely no control. Um, their ability to kind of direct that force through certain tissues and use those tissues well is very, very poor. And then by the end of 12 weeks, their ability to do those four sets of 10 with a lot more precision and control and like tension on the muscle and all these sorts of things is way higher. You haven't increased anything on paper in terms of sets and reps but you've, you're, they're actually experiencing that load more because of how they're performing it in control. And that's one of the things I think people forget um, when you might use, because even at the high, you know, more advanced levels, if you start bringing in intensity techniques, you're saying, we're still doing 12 reps in this set, but the last four reps are going to be way harder than they were previously because you're going to hit failure at eight and then you're going to get someone to assist you through the last four. Their, the volume they experience is going to be probably a lot higher um in terms of like what just, your muscular system has to tolerate 
Um, just, just to add on that that point there, because I've had confusion off clients in the past when you, when we say hit failure at eight and then continue for another four. Okay, yeah, yeah. You haven't hit failure. You've got a point where you would have failed when how the exercise is set up. But at that point of eight, you haven't hit failure. So you haven't trained past failure. The amount of times I've heard that, oh, yeah, I trained past failure because my friend spotted me through this part of the range. No. Yeah. I mean, you can't train with 110%. Refer to our failure, where we talked about how to define failure, train to failure for that, for that sort of chat. But yes, like all we're doing is modifying the resistance that someone's dealing with so they can carry on because they've got to a point where their strength levels aren't enough so we change the resistance manually or do a drop set, all those sorts of things, and we get them to carry on. So, yeah. But those the sex goblin has been far too quiet in most of this episode, it I think. looks like he's in a trance here. He does look like quietly in a trance state. Yeah. Look at that. I was, I was super tuned out there for a second. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm back in. I'm back in. I was listening to a little bit tuned out. So that's so, that. I was all in my head thinking about the subject. <laughs> do, you know, do you know that meme where you see that girl and she's like, oh, the math sums are going on in the back of her head? <laughs> I, was like in, I was like in that zone. <laughs> but instead of all the math zones, it was just ridiculous porn. Because again, <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, uh, Ross was dressed as uh, Aragorn in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Tops of Gimli. Let's not be... so could bring it back to like the coaching side of things i think you know when we see if you're a coach out there who's kind of got into that approach of increasing volume and you've you know come up with a plan and you're just going to run that i would challenge you to be more of a coach and i mean that in the sense of don't you know if you like for instance i have a i've with everyone now i basically map out the phases you know and it might be you know for instance six months in advance i'm like this is how i see things going on paper and it's but nothing set in stone in the sense of we an example is i just ran a phase with a guy and i'd put like phase one and then there's this little bridging period where we have one to two weeks where we kind of gather the data i make the new program and originally i'd said i'd said oh we'll probably be increasing volume here we'll be bringing some more intensity techniques and stuff and he like i basically made the new plan and and after looking at the progress through the first phase, how he felt, how how he progressed, all these sorts of things, the volume's largely the same um, because we actually have this scenario where he was progressing super well and we didn't actually need to do much. We changed a few things around in terms of we did increase intensity techniques and like the use of those and, and which is going to kind of increase the volume he actually has, has to deal with, but not on the scale of, I'm just going to arbitrarily chuck sets and reps up because that's what I heard is better. Like that's, I think that's, not being present with what you're doing, not understanding what you're doing and how to interpret the data. I think that's the the thing of if you're going to coach people, um, prescribe exercise, write programs, understand what you're doing. And by that, it's coming back to like understand the forces that are involved in the exercises and what, you know, how that might change based on how they perform it, anatomy, all these sorts of things of how that force relates to them and what's being trained, but you know, what's experiencing the volume, let's say. And then understand how to make sense of the data that you get from, from running these, what are essentially experiments, and, and then use that to inform your approach. Equally, if you're someone who has followed JP for ages and you love a, a, a top set and a back off set, Maybe experiment a little bit with some volume phases for your clients and see how they respond to that. Not everyone is going to love nor respond perfectly well to just two sets of dying. You could also check out Chris Beardsley's stuff on effective reps if you want uh, a cool potential mechanistic insight 
into how these things might actually be leading to very similar outcomes and possibly why, um, which I think is, is a really nice way of framing the whole discussion under an umbrella. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's cool. But as the boys say, this is how you start coaching. Mm. It's got a bunch of tools we can start to use. How do we apply them to the person in front of us? I think it comes back to Ross's point early on of this conversation isn't us telling you disregard anything around sets, reps, load. More so, if you're going to use sets, reps, load, understand what goes into that and then it's valid. Otherwise, yeah. it's just arbitrary. Um, questions? Additions? Sounds like a good wrap-up. Yeah. I'll make one point before we go actually um, now that I'm tuned back in like I, I use with some of my guys um, a volume escalation model but it's not done with the kind of level of arbitration that might be done in some other cases the idea is that when we start it we're waiting until we hit a point where there's a certain kind of apex of progression that kind of kicks up where you know we're starting to run into issues where apex up. of progression no, it's bad ass no, <laughs> I feel like you I feel like you <laughs> <laughs> but we're like we're waiting until the point where there's a call to actually start to escalate so like if i'm like looking so normally when i start somebody on that if i think okay there's a suitable option here to go that direction maybe they're a little bit more advanced i'm not just kind of waiting this kind of arbitrary amount of time and then pushing it up again the game plan is to hold off on baseline volume if you want to call it that wait until we're getting to a point where just things aren't moving as well if things are moving well there's no point in changing it and then when you do get to a point where things maybe aren't moving as confused me, or maybe you find that, okay, there's probably a better avenue for progression here than simply just kind of flogging a dead horse, taking half a rep here, taking a tiny little play here. And then maybe, okay, let's try and move this up again, see if we start to move, and then holding that offer again. And then if you start to find a kind of flow or a pattern where things move quite well, then yeah, for sure, start to bring things back up again. You know, so for myself, I'm currently doing that, and me and Kyle are kind of breaking it down in that kind of way with some of my guys, I'm doing the same thing, but not with everyone, just for the sake of it. Quick one for you then in that case. Get me. When you hit that apex of progression, how do you differentiate for your clients or for yourself or whatever, whether to do more or do less? That's what I was going to say. Both. More or less what? In terms of volume? Yeah. Or work, whatever. It could be fatigue, right? For me, yeah. it's, for me, preference for the most part um, is a big one for me. So I like to train hard. Anyone sees me train hard, I, I like to bring it to the to depths, if you will. And that's something that's kind of somewhat of a non-negotiable for me because I just I don't enjoy training as much as I don't do it. I know that I can do that and still progress. When I hit that point where maybe like, you know, I can think to myself, okay, could I potentially go a different route here to gain a little bit more? So for example, normally I'll keep that quote unquote top set or that kind of working set. And then I might maneuver that secondary set to give me a little bit more out of it. Maybe that's rather than going from like a back off set of maybe eight to 10 or something, I might go in and do something like, you know, maybe like a four by four, you know, where we're getting a little bit more rest. Knowing the rest probably isn't all that kind of much of an issue. I can drop load a little bit here but I can probably accumulate a little bit more. I can probably bring myself closer to a point where that objective outcome that we normally talk about, those effective reps, can be hit in a way where I might have done a little bit more to get there. So but it's that kind of idea. I think, just push you on it ever so slightly. Go in, yeah. So how do we determine whether or not yeah. deload or progression? I think that's and more I mean, kind yeah, of... Yeah, I'd be thinking along the lines of... Like, do I know my client oh, yeah. is like actually paying attention to how they're feeling? And if they're like, I'm feeling oh, no, for sure, for sure. Like, if I'm not getting any kickback from a fatigue point of view, and yeah. it seems so I'm not moving, yeah. okay, I'm going to say to myself, okay, maybe more volume is there. Pardon me, maybe I just didn't get the, the yeah, 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 I think we did. Yeah, so, gonna, we're going to reel it back. Luke's going <laughs> to edit that bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, like, obviously, if I'm if, if the signs of fatigue are there, like, you know, if we're looking at kind of you know, central fatigue and those things are kicking up quite effectively, you know, if appetite's going a little bit, cognition's there, sleep's all over the shop, then I'm not going to go, hmm. Yeah, more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it is a case of looking at it objectively and saying, okay, what else is going on within this? But if it's simply a case that I'm feeling fresh, I'm feeling good, or a client is feeling fresh and I'm feeling good, 
and there's still a little bit less progression there, maybe there's better avenues to take, then I will escalate volume. I'll tell you, know, you the, the best thing to escalate in all of this, um, regardless of volume, is just... It's trend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. As soon as you said that, I was like, okay. <laughs> so you ignore this. Like, when yeah. people start fatiguing, or like, you know, you think they're not pushing, just a bit more training. Yeah, um, exactly. And now I can't... can't. Yeah, but how do we define trend? <laughs> I can't emphasize the uh, the medical disclaimer at the beginning of this podcast enough. All, all Is there a medical disclaimer? Yeah, yeah, there's okay. yeah. one I've been. It's all entertainment purposes only. People do not take that as literal advice. <laughs> Imagine some people now be like, "Well, fuck it." I just there's someone, there's somebody watching this is going. Finally, <laughs> it's me. I'm the guy. I'm finally. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say we'll wrap it up there because we've got to shoot onto our onto our study call. But thank you guys. Um, and yeah, thank you guys for Thank you, everyone who's listening. If there's any questions you have, drop them in the comments on YouTube, tag us in stories and stuff. The works. Um, and if you want to hear us talk about this more, then obviously let us know. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health-orientated products, you can use code MUSCLEMENTORS at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new Pro Prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue light, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day -day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.